Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. On July 27, 1996, a bomb detonated in Atlanta. The location was a crowded park hosting an outdoor concert at the city's first Olympic Games. 111 people were injured. Two people were killed. A security guard named Richard Jewell was lauded as a hero. He'd spotted the bomb and worked to clear the area. Casualties were far lower because of his actions. But within days, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported, well, a bombshell. FBI suspects hero guard may have planted bomb, its headline blared. A media frenzy followed. Everyone was sure that Richard Jewell was the guy. He wasn't. And what happened to him and the case is now the subject of a fascinating book. It's called The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. The authors are Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin. And Kevin Salwin is in St. Louis today to speak at the Central Reform Congregation in the Central West End. And he's here with me in studio right now. So, Kevin, welcome. Great to be with you, Sarah, and great to be back in this uh very early Olympic City. That's right. I'm glad yeah. you've, you've honored our background there. Yeah. Not many people know that. <laughs> now, Kevin, your book, it goes in depth not just on Richard Jewell, but on the guy who actually set the bomb in Atlanta. And it seems like this is the guy who's, who's almost more forgotten in this story. Remind us, who was this bomb setter? Well, I, I actually love the idea that he's more forgotten. Um, I, I think the honoring of, of people who are terrorists is... Uh, is not something that we want to do in our society. But Eric Rudolph was the actual bomber. And in many ways, he becomes a half character in our book. Um, in many ways, he is exactly who you would think of when you're thinking of somebody who would disrupt, attempt to disrupt and kill at a world event. You know, he's, um, he's very anti-government. He's, he's not just fundamentalist Christian, but he's Christian identity, kind of strange sects of Christianity and, and you know, military training, a loner, lives in the woods, that kind of thing. Had been a pot dealer, fascinating yeah. uh, part of his Christianity. Um, yeah. This guy kind of had it all going on, and it turns out um, not only set a bomb there, but but set several other bombs. He did, and, and you know, if you think about the types of places that he bombed, he bombed... Um, two abortion clinics. He bombed a, a bar that ho hosted a lot of gay and lesbian events. And of course, he bombed the Olympics. And the reason why he bombed the Olympics, he said, was because it represented to him the kind of collectivism that was seen in John Lennon's song, Imagine. And he wanted to disrupt that event. But it's really important to notice that in these bombings that he did, his primary target was law enforcement. Mm. And law enforcement really was the goal of his, of his series of bombings to the point where he did sucker bombs. In other words, a bomb that would bring in law enforcement and first responders, and then a second bomb that would take them out. Fortunately, he wasn't, wasn't very good at his job, and he actually didn't, wasn't able to kill very many people. He was, for the book, our, our, he was my personal pen pal from Supermax, the highest security federal prison in Florence, Colorado. And so what he had to say to us actually makes for some very interesting material in the suspect. But, um, you know, he's certainly not somebody I think we ought to dwell on too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I learned a yeah. lot about him from your book, but yeah, I did not want to. I did not want to hang out with him or, or hear more of his thoughts. Now, Richard Jewell, on the other hand, he's a really fascinating character, and and the Atlanta Journal Constitution relied on unnamed sources to name him as a primary suspect in this. And it turns out their sources were correct. The FBI had started to think he was the guy, yeah. but your paper, the Wall Street Journal, you guys didn't run with that story. Why is that? 
Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, let, let's, set, let's just set the scene here a little bit. You know, we have, you're at the largest peacetime event in history. There are two million visitors to Atlanta. 197 nations have been invited to come to the games. All 197 send delegations of athletes. So this thing is massive. And in the center of it is this park that has been newly built as the largest urban park in the past quarter century. It's called Centennial Olympic Park. And it is the place where you don't have to have a ticket. You don't have to have any, any, any reason to be there other than just having fun. And every night, 50,000 visitors are there. And on the night that the bomb goes off on July 27th, Richard Jewell has, has spotted the bomb ahead of time. We can get into Richard's background, but, you know, he is a, he's a security guard. He sees this dark green pack under a dark green bench sitting on grass in the shadows at 1 a.m. and realizes that thing shouldn't be there and um, helps to clear the, clear the area helps to call in law enforcement to get people out of the way, which is really hard to do in this party with 50,000 people in the park. And many of, of them chaos. are drunk. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun. It's a, it, nobody's expecting there to be a terrorist incident in the middle of this. And instead, and instead Richard helps to clear the area. For two days, he's, he's, um, he's brought around by his handlers at AT&T, who were his security employers. And they take him to CNN and USA Today, and he does a couple of other interviews. Meanwhile, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is working on a story that says that the FBI is indeed looking at Richard Jewell as their lead suspect. Mm -hmm. At the Wall Street Journal, I was running the Wall Street Journal Southeast News Operation at the time. And, and at the Journal, we had heard Richard's name from three different sources. Mm -hmm. And... Um, my colleagues and I in Atlanta were, were pretty eager to run this story. You knew this was a good scoop. It was a good scoop. It was an opportunity to be at least tied, if not out in front on the story, which is, you know, one of our goals. That's what we journalists want. Yeah, exactly. And in New York, um, our managing editor, Paul Steiger, said, no, I'm sorry. Uh, we don't have enough. You, If we brought this to a grand jury, you wouldn't have enough to charge Richard Jewell. Hmm. So we should not be running this story. So the fact that he was a suspect wasn't enough. Paul wanted to show that, yeah, there's a good chance he actually did it. That's correct. And, and or at least had enough so that he could be arrested or charged. Mm -hmm. None of those things ever happened in Richard Jewell's case. Now, they held off on this story. But after the Journal-Constitution broke it, everybody followed. There was such a media pile on. And, and reading your book, one of the things that struck me is just how personally vicious so much of this coverage was. People just seemed to constantly bring up Richard Jewell's weight to paint him as a redneck. Yeah. Do you think this was just playing into this idea of, you know, the media elites, here's this redneck, he's, he's out there killing people? Yeah, I mean, it's profiling at its worst in many ways, right? 1996 also is a fascinating year in media because you've got, you know, CNN is already up and running, but that's the year that MSNBC starts up, Fox News Channel starts up, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and a bunch of other publications go online for the first time. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden within newsrooms, the pace of news gathering and reporting starts to truly accelerate. And as importantly, our perspective as news consumers starts to change. We start to anticipate that we will have all information now. And so, you know, the, the pressure and the demand 
inside that newsroom at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was off the charts. They wanted to own the story. They desperately wanted to own the story. And the, the character in our book named Kathy Scruggs, who, who leads that investigation, is this just delightful She's, I mean, she's my one. She's my favorite character to write. In she's this so book. vivid. She's, <laughs> well, she is. You know, she is. Um, she is sexy. She's profane. She drinks a lot. She smokes a lot. She keeps a gun in her purse next to her perfume. The cops love her, and so when Kathy hears from a, a good source that Richard Jewell is now the lead suspect of the FBI, she says, you know, in her mind, she's thinking, well, you know, I'm not in the business of being last. Mm-hmm. I want to be first. And they and she pushes her editors to run this story. And they went with it. I mean, it doesn't, I don't get the sense from your book that they fought her hard. She did, you know, she brought this to them. They decided to go with it. And they have defended that decision ever since. Do you think there's, there's anyone in the top brass at the Journal-Constitution who had regrets about this? Well, they, it, yes, there are. And there are people at, at the, at the, um, at the paper who really wish that they had used a different voice in the story. The story is kind of a train wreck if you look at reporting standards we aspire to. It's a rough it's a rough piece. Mm-hmm. It's a rough piece because it doesn't it doesn't cite sources. It doesn't tell them it doesn't tell readers where this where this could have come from, that kind of thing. Very important things in journalism ethics. Um, at you know at the same time it's one of those really interesting gray areas because you've got you've got the facts of this being true, Richard Jewell was the lead suspect at the FBI. They had over half of their resources dedicated to the Jewell team mm-hmm. of, within the FBI. And the FBI desperately wanted to solve this crime in part because they wanted the Olympics to be safe. We were right in the middle of the games. We were day eight of 17 days. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- the FBI really wanted the right person to be captured. They wanted this crime solved. And when, um, and when Kathy was able to pry that information out of one of her sources, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was able to double check it with the FBI the next morning, which is an important step. They, and they didn't did deny do that. it. The facts of this were right. The interesting thing is, facts and truth aren't always the same thing. And it absolutely wasn't true that Richard was the bomber. And reading your book, I, I just couldn't help but think that this was a perfect storm. You had this FBI agent who, as, as you detail in your book, he had this track record of of not necessarily doing the right thing in investigations. You had a really aggressive reporter at a newspaper that was maybe in over its head. And then there's Richard Jewell himself, who had this background to the point that his own employers suggested the FBI take a look at him. Do you think if any one of those characters had been different, things would have ended in a, in a much happier way that wouldn't have been this this just uh, train wreck. Possibly, but I doubt it. And and so if you think about moving forward into, into 2020, what we have now is a social media environment in which these types of false accusations and rushes to judgment happen all the time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really intrigued Kent and, 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 and me during the during the reporting of this book was how it echoes, even though it's 1996, but how it echoes today's environment and the fact that we are all involved. We're all in the publishing industry. And so we're all making these decisions like the decision that was being made inside the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newsroom and every newsroom around the country. 
And that's what's so fascinating. Every time we make a decision to retweet something or share something on Facebook, and then we add a little snarky comment, well, of course the guy's fat and he lives with his mother. And if you look at what happened with the Duke lacrosse players, mm -hmm. and if you looked what happened with, with the Boston Marathon bombing, these are environments that happen over and over again. And unfortunately, we often make exactly the same mistake. You had a, just an interesting wrinkle in this book in that your co-author, uh, Kent Alexander, was the U.S. attorney. He was personally involved with this case as a prosecutor. And it was it was interesting to me that there was no first person in this book. Were you tempted to tell it from his perspective and, and later decided to go with that omniscient voice? No, we both Kent and I absolutely love narrative nonfiction. So if you like Boys in the Boat or if you like um, Devil in the White City, that's the style we were aiming for. We really wanted to deeply research our subjects. So we did 187 original interviews. We read through over 90,000 pages of documents. And then we wanted to, to write it in a form that is so readable and feels like a novel that um, people pick it up and say, oh, wow, this is fun. I get to read this tonight. And so we didn't feel like using the first person in Kent's... Kent in didn't Kent's, want to be front and center. Exactly he, he wanted right. to tell the better story. Yeah. Well, you but really succeeded. It's, well, a, it's a great you. read. Um, yeah. But it is, there's still this, this very disconcerting moment in the book when Kent first meets Kathy Scruggs, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter. Um, and in this meeting, she shocks Kent by using a very coarse sexual term. And this is NPR, so I'm going to tread a little lightly here. But she volunteers that she won't give him oral sex, but that she will treat him right. And he later learns that the, the euphemism, the, the word that she used instead of that euphemism, um, was, was sort of a way of saying the reporter would write a puff piece. Um, but it's still a very awkward moment. Did you guys struggle with how to deal with that in this narrative you're telling? We, you know, we always struggled with how to put Kent in the story because he's a character. He's actually the guy who writes Richard Jewell his clearance letter. And as you point out, he's got that scene with Kathy. Um, uh, but the great thing was Kent was inside all the FBI rooms. He was on the phone with Louis Free, the FBI director. He was on the phone with Merrick Garland, who was then the number um, two or three guy at the Justice Department. He was he was sitting alongside Sally Yates when she was when they were making decisions together. And so that first person fly on the wall is absolutely an, an energy driver for the whole book. Mm -hmm. You know, at the same time. You know, by the time he brought his law enforcement knowledge, including that scene, and when he when he first told me about that scene, and he kind of blushed when he told me about her about Kathy's proposal to him, and I said, "Oh, well, that's just a journalism term of art," and that in and many ways he didn't ways, even realize he that. didn't realize that, and it and it act, and it actually ended up being a touchstone for what the journalist on one side and the law enforcement person on the other side could bring if we combined our, you know, essentially one plus one equals three. This here. book has both your knowledge. Um, well, then the film Richard Jewell that came out, and it's based um, on the Vanity Fair story by Marie Brenner, but also in the research you did in this book. Right. This really came under fire for its portrayal of Kathy Scruggs. I'm wondering if, if you feel like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution came after that as almost a pretext to attack the film because the film makes them, or because the story makes them look bad. The short answer is yes. The, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a masterful job of deflecting from their own responsibility here and instead flipping onto the film this um, fictionalized scene. The reality is what the filmmakers should have done mm -hmm. is, 
is too pulled up short of having Kathy basically trade sex for her tip. Because there is no allegation she did that in we this found, case. We found no evidence of that in our research. And we, as you, know, as, as you point out, we, we worked very hard to make sure that you know, our book is accurate. And so you know, I think that was a, that was a decision in which um, the, the, the filmmakers decided that was a part they could fictionalize because Kathy had a reputation so that they could fictionalize that scene. I don't think it did anybody a service. You think it was a misstep? Yeah. It's interesting, though. Um, you know, Kathy comes to a tragic end in this story. It's it's very sad to hear that she basically died of a drug overdose. And, and so many of the other main characters in this story come to a bad end. But Richard, you get the sense he really found contentment. You see a little bit of poetic justice in, in the ending for him. I, I do. I You know, the, the reality is Richard Jewell was, was, um, was a hero. There should be a statue of him in the center of Atlanta because because of the number of lives that he saved. There are undoubtedly more than 100 people walking around this planet today, the scores that he saved at the park and their offspring who owe their lives to Richard Jewell's work. And that is, I, that is I, what I wish the people remembered the movie for. And we certainly believe that people can remember that, remember him for that from the book. Well, Kevin Solomon, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Kevin is the co-author of The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. He'll be talking about that book tonight. That's at 7 p.m. at the Central Reform Congregation in the Central West End. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU.